I, I need to ask you all a question. I'm sure you're all perfectly aware that we've gone through almost our entire course on eschatology without ever looking at the book of Revelation. I told you we would do that at the beginning. And I've done that on purpose to show you that eschatology does not come from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is really sort of the icing on the cake that fills in some of the small details, but it is not the foundation of eschatology. Now, my plan next week is to give you a very quick overview of the book of Revelation. I have some rather extensive notes on it. They're 50 pages long. Okay? And I do not want to ask the church to copy those unless there are those among you who will actually use and read them. If you are in that category, see me after class, okay? And I'll arrange for a copy to be made for you. But I suspect that you may not want to work through those. Pop? Would you want to just create a PDF file and email it to those that don't? I prefer not to put my stuff in PDF files because it's too easy for it to propagate on the web, particularly if I haven't honed it, you know, sufficiently that I would, you know, there are some mistakes in it and probably some poorly stated things and probably some gross errors. So I would prefer to give it to you in printed form than in PDF form. So if you want it, let me know after class today. Okay? But we will do a very quick, rough overview of the book of Revelation. What I want to do tonight is kind of a preventative thing. I want to look at four passages in the New Testament which are difficult to reconcile with a premillennial understanding of eschatology. Now, what we have done is we have built our understanding of eschatology by starting at the foundation of God's promises and we've sort of turned the crank and we've discovered that the only way those promises can be fulfilled is in a premillennial scheme. And I hope I've convinced you of that. I'll get this one in a minute, Andrew. The switch is here. Um, but we are still left with some passages that are difficult to reconcile with that. And what I want to do is show you how those passages can be reconciled with a premillennial view so that you don't find yourself going, oh no, when you look at those passages later and say, how can I make sense of this on the basis of what we've already looked at? All right? Now, just for review, the two systems, this is the premillennial view and this is the non-millennial view, amill and post-mill view. Remember in the pre-mill view, we've got a seven-year tribulation followed by the second coming, followed by the millennial reign of Christ, followed then by the great white throne judgment and the new heavens and new earth. In the non-millennial systems, the next event that's coming will be the second coming of Christ. There is no, sorry about that, no literal earthly reign of Messiah on this earth because it's the second coming, which coincides with the rapture and coincides with the great white throne judgment the present universe is destroyed and is replaced by the new heavens and new earth. Okay? We've gone over this before, right? 
Okay. Now what I want to do is look at four passages which at first look seem to fit the non-millennial view better than the pre-millennial view and show you how we can make sense of them along the lines of what we have argued. You follow me? What we're going to do? Okay. First turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief, as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Now, both amillennialists and postmillennialists and post-trib premillennialists will go to this passage to support their views. Did you hear what I just said? Both amillennialists and post-trib premillennialists will go to this passage to support their views. Let me put up a different slide for you. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. <clears throat> Pre-trib rapture view says the rapture comes before the tribulation starts. Mid-trib rapture view says it comes in the middle. A post-trib rapture view says that it comes at the end of the tribulation. Now let's forget about amillennialists and postmillennialists for a moment. We'll deal with them shortly. Okay? Paul says that an event is coming that will catch unbelievers by surprise and sudden destruction will come upon them. Now we know that at the second coming there will be sudden destruction because Christ will return to the earth as he comes down, he will be battling the armies of Antichrist. That will be followed by the sheep and the goats judgment, in which everybody who has survived the tribulation will be split into two camps, the sheep who are the believers and the goats who are not. And the goats will have what done to them? They'll be executed and sent to hell. Okay? Now, those who hold a post-trib rapture view will say, well, this passage fits that perfectly. Because Christ will arise and sudden destruction will occur and it will come as a thief in the night because they won't have any warning. And those who hold this view will say, the pre-trib rapture and the mid-trib rapture views don't make any sense because the rapture would have happened, if pre-trib was true, seven years earlier so the unbelievers would have a warning. If it was mid-trib, it would have happened three and a half years earlier, so the unbelievers would have had a warning. The only way that the second coming can come upon unbelievers as a thief in the night is if it's the first thing that happens. You see the argument? Okay. Now, the answer to the argument is understanding the figure of speech. Okay? The reason a thief in the night comes without warning is not that there aren't signs of his coming, it's that the householder does nothing to prepare. 
Okay? It's the refusal of the householder to recognize that danger is present that makes the thief come upon him and him be destroyed. Now, the fact of the matter is, if you hold to a post-trib view, there's lots of warning, isn't there? There's the whole seven-year tribulation with all the bad things that are going to happen in it. Anybody living in this time period who's willing to consider the evidence that the calamities that are happening on earth are divine things and not natural things will know that the day is getting close. The reason sudden destruction comes upon unbelievers at the second coming, quite apart from the question of when the rapture comes, is simply their refusal to consider the evidence. Can you see it? And that's going to be true whether there's a pre-trib rapture or mid-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture. Because anybody who's refusing to consider the evidence isn't going to consider the rapture, the timing of the rapture, as evidence any more than he's going to consider the other things that are happening as evidence. They, that's right. They'd repent and they'd come to faith. Okay? Now, to put it another way, the way to understand the statement in 1 Thessalonians 5 is to recognize that this phrase, the day of the Lord, really covers this whole time period. Okay? It really includes the whole tribulation. You don't have to understand it just as the second coming because there's going to be all kinds of calamity going on during here. And by the way, there are going to be lots of unbelievers who are going to be destroyed by Christ before they get to the end of this period because they're going to be dropping like flies. Right? There's all kinds of calamity going to be happening on Earth during that time period. Gary? David, does the, um, the mid-trib folks, do they believe that the mid-trib rapture happens right before the beginning of the Great Tribulation or is there any situation? They generally believe it happens right then. Yeah. Right at the point where Antichrist steps up and says, from now on everybody worships me and nothing else. They generally hold that view. Now let's go back just to be clear on this and look at the um, amil and post-mill views. Now you can see again how 1 Thessalonians 5 would fit into this view because these people don't even believe that there's a tribulation. There's no question that this description of sudden destruction coming upon unbelievers will fit an amill or post-mill view. There's no question that it will fit a mid-trib or post-trib view. It can fit any of them. It can even fit a pre-mill view. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying that this passage does not eliminate any of the views. What eliminates the other views? The other things that we've talked about. The necessity of God's plan, the way it's going to unfold, the need, you know, we talked about populating the millennium, right? If the, if the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, there won't be any mortals left to populate the millennium. Other considerations eliminate the mid-trib, the post-trib, and the amill and post-mill views. Okay? So, if you come to 1 Thessalonians 5 and it disturbs you, I hope I've explained to you how to make sense of it. It's in your notes, by the way. Okay?
All right, let's look at the next passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. This one's kind of a fun passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the, and the love of each one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now here's where it gets interesting. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now there's an interesting statement right there. That does suggest that the kingdom is future, doesn't it? Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Okay? Now here's the difficulty. Verses 9 and 10 are very clearly talking about the second coming, aren't they? You see that? They're talking about the actual event when Christ returns to the earth. The second coming proper. I think there's little doubt of that. The problem is this. Paul says in verses 6 and 7 that God is going to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and will give you who are troubled rest when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay? That's when you're going to get rest. Now, a post-tribulationist, and this is really the, the view that matters most here, a post-tribulationist is going to say, your rescue is going to come at the second coming. That's when God is going to give you rest. You see it? You're going to be suffering tribulation. When Christ comes back, the tribulation is going to end. That means the rapture happens at the second coming. Okay? Now, a fairly, a fairly straightforward reading of the passage fits this very well. But I will show you that it also fits the pre-trib rapture view. And the answer is very simple. The rest of which Paul is speaking is not the rest of the cessation of their suffering. It's the rest of seeing God take vengeance on those who have been persecuting them. You get it? So they could have been raptured at the beginning of the tribulation and in fact, we know from Revelation chapter 6 that there are going to be people, there are going to be believers who died during the tribulation, not ones who get raptured, who are going to be under the throne saying, How long, O Lord, faithful and true, until you avenge us on those who live on the earth? And he's going to say, Hang on, because more of your friends have to die. But eventually I'm going to avenge them, and it's going to be at the second coming. Okay? 
it's not the rest that he's speaking of is not the cessation of their suffering it's the cessation of their waiting for vengeance you see it now again the passage that we've just read can make sense in a post-trib rapture view but it also can make sense in a pre-trib rapture view now the two passages that we just looked at 1 Thessalonians 5 the beginning of the chapter and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 are the two passages that post-tribbers will most go to to prove their point and what I'm showing you is that those two passages do support their view but they don't eliminate the pre-trib view either because they both fit the pre-trib view as well okay now let's go to 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 10 this one is a lot like 1st um, Thessalonians 5 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 10 but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up what event does that passage speak of? Yes. Let me let me bring up the other slide. What do, what do we call that event? Yeah, it's the destruction of this this heavens and earth and the creation of the new heavens and new earth. It's this event right here on the pre mill view this event right here on the amill and post mill view. Can you see it? Mary, by the way, all the charts that I'm using, there are copies of them on the back shelf there. Okay? It's talking about the final event at the end of the millennium in a pre-mill view or the final event at the end of the current age in a post-mill or amill view. It's clearly talking about the end of time and the beginning of eternity, right? Okay. Now here's the problem with this one. It says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now there are actually two problems. One problem is the use of the term day of the Lord. Because people will look at this passage and they will say that the day of the Lord is the end of time and the beginning of eternity. Therefore, the Amil view must be correct. And then they'd go back to 1 Thessalonians 5 and they'd say that 1 Thessalonians 5 is not picturing the beginning of the millennium as a premillennialist would say. They would say it's picturing the beginning of eternity. Okay? So the first problem is the term day of the Lord because this passage seems to say the day of the Lord is the day on which time ends and eternity begins. The second problem is they say it arrives like a thief in the night. And again, they will argue that like a thief in the night means with no signs coming before it. You see the two problems? Okay. Now let's answer the second problem first. Okay. The answer to the second problem is just like in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's not that there are no events coming before it that would tell you it's coming. It's that the people who are caught by this event have re refused to see it coming. 
Now, the people who are going to be caught unaware by the end of time and the beginning of eternity are those people, and we haven't looked at this in Revelation 20, but you probably know from your own reading that at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, there's going to be a brief rebellion in which those mortal subjects of Messiah's millennial kingdom who have not come to faith are going to rise up and join with Satan when he is released from the bottomless pit and they're going to attempt a rebellion against Christ. They think they're going to win. They think they're going to kick Christ off the earth and they're going to take over and everything's going to go on happily and they can live, you know, and have their kids and live happily ever after with Satan on a sinful planet. Well, they're incredibly stupid. But they will do it, won't they? And Christ, as Bob says, is going to squash them. Is that what you're saying? He's going to squash them. Okay? The reason it's like a thief in the night, again, is because they refuse to see the evidence. Mark. Many, many people hold that view. Now, that would be in reconciling this to the pre-mill view. But you're right. So, let, let's do this in two pieces, okay? And what you're saying is important, Mark. It's not necessary to understand 2 Peter 3.10 as saying that the Amil view is correct because it's not necessary to understand coming as a thief in the night as meaning there are no preceding events. It's true that there are no preceding events in the Amil view, but like a thief in the night doesn't mean no preceding events. It means that people refuse to see the evidence. Okay, now back to what Mark was saying. <clears throat> well, I'll come back to what Mark was saying in a minute. I do believe that 2 Peter 3.10 is talking about this event the end of time and the beginning of eternity. The second problem that we had was the use of the term day of the Lord. Because in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord is a description of the tribulation period. Here in 2 Peter 3.10, it seems to be a description of the moment in time when time ends and eternity begins. And those are two very different uses. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you study the phrase day of the Lord in Scripture, it simply means a time when God intervenes in human history in judgment. It's not a technical term that means a certain point in time. It sometimes describes an extended period of time. It can refer to everything from the rapture all the way to the end of the millennium. It can refer to just this point in time. It just basically means the day when God acts. Okay? So, this passage does not eliminate that. Now, picking up Mark's point, what Mark is saying really goes back to what we discussed last week or the week before we talked about Matthew 24 in verse 36 when Jesus says, but of that day and hour no one knows the exact day and hour. And the point is, you can know the tribulation is seven years long, but nobody's going to be able to calculate it exactly. And some people have argued, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but Mark, I know some have, and it's a plausible argument, that God may actually shorten it a little bit so that it's not totally predictable. 
Okay, some people would tie the seven thunders to that in the book of Revelation. If you know what I'm talking about, you know it, and if you don't, forget what I just said. Okay? All right, let's look at one more passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What's that, Bob? Yeah. No, 2 Thessalonians is very important. I'm trying to write an article on what I'm about to share with you, and things keep getting in the way. Um, but I hope to finish it soon. Okay. Look at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, or most manuscripts read, as though the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Now, Paul founded the church at Thessalonica. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It says he was there for three Sabbaths, so he was there for about three weeks, and then he left. Okay? Apparently, when he was there, he taught them a lot about eschatology because he refers to eschatology in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And that's quite interesting because some people say eschatology is an unimportant doctrine. Well, Paul felt it was important enough to teach a young church about it. He has left. He wrote 1st Thessalonians to them. And then he hears that they have gotten a phony communication supposedly from him saying that something had happened and they're upset about it. Now he says, I don't know if it was a letter. I don't know if it was a word. I don't know if it was by a spirit. I don't know if somebody showed up in person and told you this. I don't know if somebody sent you a letter and signed my name to it. But it wasn't me. By the way, at the end of the letter, look at verse 17 in chapter 3. This is the only place you see this in any of Paul's letters. He says, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Okay? Paul signed this letter, and he signed it in the body of the letter, not at the bottom. Now, apparently when people copied the letters, they didn't copy his signature. But here he tells them that his signature is on this letter, so they know it's really from him. Because the thing, that other communication they got was phony. Okay? Now, here's what you have to think about. Somebody had sent some kind of a message to the Thessalonians saying that they had missed something, that something had already occurred, and they were upset about it. It doesn't really say exactly what it was that they were told that they had missed, although you can narrow it down pretty easily. Again, in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. The subject is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, let me go back to the other slide that has the, the three tribulation views on it. Okay. 
Are you following this stuff, folks? Is this this isn't too complicated? I hope. I mean, if I can understand it, you can understand it. Okay. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Again, this is a passage that people who hold to the post-trib rapture view will go to to support their view. They will say, Paul talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, with him. And there's a single article on it. It says, the coming and gathering. It doesn't say the coming and the gathering. So they're not two separate events. And they would say, well, if the coming and our gathering together with him are the same event, our gathering together with him is the rapture. Therefore, the rapture has to be at the end of the tribulation because the second coming is at the end of the tribulation. You see the argument? They would also go further and they would look at verses 3 and 4 and they would say that proves it. Because Paul says, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself about all that is called God and that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And they would say, this event that you were told has already passed won't come until the falling away occurs and the man of sin is revealed. Well, the man of sin isn't going to be revealed until the tribulation, okay? And the falling away, which is some kind of apostasy of the church, they would argue, isn't going to happen until we're in the tribulation. So again, this proves a post-trib rapture. That's the argument that they will give, and they will say this is a very strong argument. I just proved my point. The rapture comes at the end of the tribulation. Well, we know that the argument has to be false because if the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, nobody can populate the millennium. But we still have to explain what's going on here. Well, in reality, it's very, very simple. Okay? And please don't publish this because I plan to publish it first. Okay? I know none of you want to do that. And you may think that it's so stupid it's not worth publishing. But here's how it works, okay? I allege that the event that they were told they missed was the rapture. Post-tribbers allege that it was the rapture as well. Think about this. Paul says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was with you I told these things? And then in verse 15, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. He says, I already taught you this stuff. All you have to do is remember what I taught you. Now, here's, here's the argument. If Paul had taught the Thessalonians a post-trib rapture, and somebody sent them a letter that said you missed the rapture, what would the Thessalonians have done? What? What? Panic. No. They wouldn't panic. They'd laugh. They'd roll on the floor in paroxysms of laughter. Because the millennium wasn't happening, because the second coming is an event that nobody can miss, and because there would have been seven years of tribulation beforehand, and they couldn't possibly not have known that. Now, the post-tribbers will say, well... Chapter 1 talks about the Thessalonians undergoing persecution and they thought that was the tribulation. Well, that argument doesn't work because Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation which we know comes in the middle of the tribulation from Daniel chapter 7 
And they couldn't possibly have missed that. Okay? So Paul couldn't have taught them a post-trib rapture. It would have been absolutely ludicrous. You know, everything would have changed. Christ would be on earth. The sign of his coming would have been seen. The sheep and the goats judgment would have already occurred. Nobody could miss that. If he had taught them a mid-trib rapture, what would they have done? They'd laugh. Three and a half years of the tribulation would have already passed. Okay? The very beginning of the tribulation isn't going to look very much different than normal times, but by the time we get to the middle of the tribulation, there are going to be all kinds of supernatural judgments falling upon the earth. And the Antichrist is going to be a well-known figure by the middle of that time period. He's going to be so powerful that when he walks into the temple of God and says, I am God, everybody worships me, nobody's going to have the power to say no. So if he taught them a post-trib rapture and they got this letter, they would have laughed. So they could not have taken the first three and a half years as the persecution and the false teaching and all that. They could not have taken they, they the they, could, they couldn't because by the time we get deep into this time period, Antichrist is going to be a public figure known the world over who is consolidating power. Mystery Babylon, that religion that's talked about in Revelation chapter 17, is going to exist. The whole world is going to be under its control. Okay, So they, they couldn't possibly have believed that. Now, if Paul had taught them a pre-trib rapture, and somebody said to them, you missed the rapture, it was plausible. Why was it plausible? Because first of all, the Thessalonians lived in a small town. They were the only group of believers there. If the rapture had happened all over the rest of the earth and the other believers had disappeared, they wouldn't know it. And because we know that the early days of the tribulation are not going to have immediately supernatural signs. Okay? There are going to be wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes and the beginning of sorrows, but the Antichrist isn't necessarily going to be a powerful world figure in the early days of the tribulation. This is the only way that they could possibly have believed when they were told that they missed the rapture. Furthermore, if you look at verse 1, look at the order of the phrases. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. Post-trib rapture view says what happens first, the rapture or the second coming? It says the rapture occurs first. We go up in the air to meet him and then he comes down. It's backwards. You see it? On the other hand, if it's talking about the rapture, 1 Thessalonians says that Christ comes down and we are gathered to him. The order of the phrases is right if it's a description of the rapture and has nothing to do with the second coming. Mary. Well, uh, obvious, I'm not, I'm always, you know, this, 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 Okay, let me, let me explain the rest of it. 
Okay, I see where you're going. You're looking at verses 3 and 4, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically agreeing with you. No, I, I understand that. I think that's why we have to go through the middle of the tribulation. Well, okay, but take a look at verses 3 and 4. I'm going to tell you something else that you may not be used to. Okay? Verse 3 says, Let no one deceive you any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Does any of your Bibles say unless the apostasy comes first? Okay. That is not a translation. That is a transliteration, and it's a very bad transliteration. Transliteration is when you take a Greek word the Greek word apostasia and you change it to English. Apostasy. Okay, it's like the word baptize. Okay, the word baptize is not an English word. It's become an English word because the Bible translators chose not to translate it and just transliterated it. The word apostasia is a Greek word and it does not mean doctrinal deviation. It simply means departure. Greek language uses the word apostasia to talk about the departure of a ship from a port or a person from a place. Now, it can be used in figures of speech to talk about the departure of a person's ideas from the truth, but that's not what it really means. Now, in context, take a look what he says. That day will not come unless the apostasia comes first. There is an article in Greek. The word the is there. And Greek is different from English. You don't have to have the article. In, in Greek, if I said unless apostasia comes first, in English we'd say, well, that just means the category of departure. But in English, I'm sorry, in English, that would mean the category of departure, but in Greek, it doesn't mean the category. It can be something specific without the article. When they add the article and say the apostasy, it makes it even more specific. And what that suggests is that this apostasy, this departure, has to be something that Paul is talking about in the context. <clears throat> now, people normally look at that and they see the word apostasy and they think, well, that must mean doctrinal deviation. And they pull this idea out of the air and they say, it's the departure of the visible church from sound doctrine. There's not a thing in the whole book of Thessalonians about the departure of the visible church from sound doctrine. But right in the context, there's a departure. Where is it? It's verse 1. The most likely reference of that word departure is the rapture in verse 1. That's very interesting. This view that the apostasia in verse 1 is the rapture is an old view, but it's fallen out of favor. But it has been taught before and some people are beginning to look at it and I think it's correct. In context, he talks about the departure. And nowhere else is there anything about any departure. Now, furthermore, he says, so let, let's read verse 3 that way and try it on for size. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the rapture comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, here's where it again gets tricky. Okay? 
people will say, well, it's talking about the revealing of the man of sin. That's got to be during the tribulation because nobody's going to know who the man of sin is until the tribulation. Well, I say that that's completely silly. Whoever the man of sin is going to be, the Antichrist, he's got to be some kind of public figure in the years leading up to the tribulation. He's got to be somebody who's known. This isn't just going to be a nobody who appears out of nowhere, and he's not going to be born on the day of the rapture. Okay? He, he's got to come onto the world scene. Now, nobody is going to know that he's the Antichrist. Okay? But Paul's argument is that the day of the Lord, this period of time, isn't going to begin until the rapture occurs and the man of sin is revealed. And since you haven't seen the man of sin being revealed and, and you're not into this time period, then you can't have missed the rapture. Okay, the point is not so much if you saw these signs, you'd know that the rapture was near. The point is that if you had passed the rapture, you would begin to see these signs. Does that make sense to you? All right. Is that why How? you told us in our Bible study that there's no reason that he, not to mention any names, could, couldn't be on earth right now? Right. I think, I think at every time in history since the first century, Satan has had one or more people training for the role of Antichrist. He has no choice because he doesn't know when the end times are going to begin and he has to have somebody ready to step into that role. Mary, you're going to ask a question. Good. 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 So I think what he's doing here is giving them the first sign. The first unmistakable sign. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Everybody catch what Mary's saying? He's saying that the, the first unmistakable, undeniable sign that the tribulation is underway is the abomination of desolation. It's where the Antichrist claims to be God. And you haven't seen that. Right. You haven't seen that. Mark. Okay. Sure. Now, lots of Christians wondered wondered whether some of the Caesars were the Antichrist. And, you know, at various times in history, people have wondered about others. Um, the Reformers thought the Pope was the Antichrist. You know, a lot of people thought that Napoleon was the Antichrist. <laughs> it's probably true. Not from our perspective, but yes. Okay? Now... We're about out of time, and we should quit. I'll take a couple more questions if you have any. But the reason I've done what we've done tonight is I want to show you how one should reason, and we've done this in hermeneutics, when you run into something that seems like it's not reconcilable with the rest of Scripture. Okay? 
if you start with the understanding that scripture is a unified communication from the mind of God and that there cannot be any contradictions in it if you look hard enough when you see a contradiction you will find a way to reconcile the passage now that is not a self-fulfilling prophecy it's simply the logical thing to do based upon the premises that we start with which is that God's word is unified and consistent and non-contradictory and true okay Mark a lot of wonderful Christians who are millennials. Absolutely. So I, I don't think that you hang your theological hat on this, but it does give you a framework with which to understand the Bible as the literal word of God sure. instead of some kind of figurative. Yes. Uh, that's the difference I see is uh, millennialism. They, fix, they, they it gives them a hook into reinterpreting a whole lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we've talked about that before. Um, you know, what Mark is saying is very important. We don't want to ever suggest that those who hold a different eschatological view don't hold a high view of Scripture. But I am suggesting, just as Mark is saying, that a pre-mill view allows us to handle Scripture in a literal interpretation without making exceptions in order to make the system work. Those who hold an a-mill or a post-mill view are forced to spiritualize or allegorize or figureize many portions of scripture because their system requires it in order to make it consistent. This system does not require that, as I understand it. Okay? All right, let's pray and we'll call it quits. All right? Father, we thank you again for the many ways in which you have blessed each one of us Thank you for the measure of health that you've given to us. Please help us to appreciate that and to rejoice in it and to use it in your service. We ask for your protection as we travel home, for the gift of a good night's sleep, for the blessing of awaking tomorrow in health, and for clear guidance to follow you and serve you through the day. Pray that we might bring honor to your name and adorn the doctrine of Christ by how we live as your spirit works within us. And we pray in your son's name.